a college, a society that values women, respects women, empowers women, that recognises that women are people too, people with equal and inalienable rights. That's a society that I want to live in. That's a college that I want to be a member of. Welcome to the Medical Republic. I'm Francine. And I'm Felicity. Obstetricians and gynaecologists were gathered in Melbourne last week for the annual RANSCOG scientific meeting. And that little clip you heard at the start was the address given by President Dr Vijay Roach. And when he was addressing the Congress, he was really hammering home the point about equal gender representation at the top echelons of medical colleges. It's a pretty important issue, particularly if you're a women's health association. Definitely. And this week, we're aiming for a little gender balance ourselves in terms of the content of the show. First, we're diving into women's health, looking at asthma management in pregnancy. And a little later, we'll be dipping into male reproductive health uh, and talking with a researcher who thinks they've discovered what could be a major cause of male infertility. And we also have a sponsored piece this week as an interview on why men don't like going to the doctor. Very fitting. First up, though, I'm speaking with one researcher who presented at RANSCOG last week, Dr. Vanessa Murphy. She's a postdoc scientist at the University of Newcastle. Her research is all about using the Pheno breath test to help pick asthma medications for women during pregnancy. Dr. Murphy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you did a um, talk at the RANSCOG conference uh, in Melbourne this week. Do you want to just give me a little bit of detail about you know, what you were presenting to some of the doctors there? Sure. So I'm a researcher that's been investigating asthma during pregnancy for um, the last 20 years, and I'm particularly interested in new ways of managing asthma and adjusting treatment for asthma during pregnancy um, that give us better outcomes for both the mother and the baby. So we've been looking at an approach called pheno-based management. Pheno stands for the fraction of exhaled nitric oxide. It's basically a, a breath marker in the exhaled breath that tells us about the level of inflammation in the lungs and therefore what kind of medication might be best for the woman. So do you want to talk me through how that might work in clinic? So how does the breath test help the clinician make decisions about uh, the treatment? Yeah, so the breath test measures the amount of eosinophilic inflammation in the lungs. And eosinophils are the cells that are commonly associated with asthma and that can be reduced with corticosteroid medication. So when a woman has a high level of eosinophils, our treatment algorithm increases inhaled corticosteroids. And when she has a low level, uh, we decrease medication. And in the, in the mid-range, we don't make any changes. So it's a precise way of adjusting medication for her situation in her lungs. And why not just give all women with asthma the highest level of dosage for a particular medication? Why, why is it important to tailor it to the patient? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons why it's important to tailor the medication to the patient. And one is that women don't want to be taking more medication than they need to, particularly in, in pregnancy, that's a particular issue. And the literature shows us that women often stop medication when they find out they're pregnant. And that's not a good approach either. So it's really important that women are on um, a good level of medication that controls their asthma because when asthma is well controlled in pregnancy, there are better outcomes observed in uh, both the woman themselves and their babies. 
And how does it work? So is this something that can be done today in Australia in practice or is it more sort of a research area? Yeah, so pheno can be measured very easily with uh, a small piece of portable equipment. It only takes about a minute and a half to get a result from the test. And the algorithm that we're using in our research, we've developed from our own population of pregnant women with asthma. So it's still it's still a research tool primarily, but we hope that as we continue our research that we will actually move towards implementation of this approach in the antenatal clinic setting. And it, it certainly would be uh, able to be used in a general practice, a primary care setting as well. Is there some evidence that using your algorithm to make treatment decisions um improves the outcome for patients? Yeah, so this study, uh, the study we did that was published in 2011 showed that using this approach uh, significantly reduced exacerbations in pregnancy by 50%. It was also associated with a lower inhaled corticosteroid dose by the end of the study compared to women who had their treatment adjusted based on symptoms alone. When we followed up the babies from this study, um, the infants whose mothers had received this approach were 90% less likely to have recurrent bronchiolitis in the first 12 months of life, and they were 54% less likely to have doctor-diagnosed asthma themselves at preschool age. And that's interesting that you said the children have a lower incidence of asthma if the mother was had quite controlled asthma during pregnancy. Do you know why that is? We don't know why that is, but we're very intrigued to find out uh, because this is a really exciting finding that, that points to a potential primary prevention strategy for asthma in kids who are already at high risk from having a, a mother who has asthma. Um, there's several possibilities there. It may be that uh, there are changes in the way the fetal immune system is, is programmed. Uh, this might be due to a reduction in maternal inflammation in pregnancy or reduced exacerbations. It might be um, more directly linked to the use of inhaled corticosteroids. We don't know that yet, but we're doing more studies to try and find out what the mechanisms of this effect are. So during pregnancy, is it common for women who have asthma to have more exacerbations? Yeah, so we've found in our research that about 45% of women will have an exacerbation requiring medical intervention. So that could be as serious as being admitted to hospital, or it might also mean that they have to go to their GP for an unscheduled visit because of a flare-up of their symptoms. So it is quite common for exacerbations to occur. And pregnancy is also a time where asthma is quite unpredictable. So uh, some women will find that their symptoms improve in pregnancy, whereas others will find that they worsen. And there doesn't seem to be a good way of, of predicting who's going to worsen and who's going to get better. And that's what makes regular monitoring of asthma in pregnancy so important. I think regular monitoring of asthma in pregnancy is really important uh, because of that likelihood that it might change. Um, provision of a written action plan is, is recommended for women who are pregnant. Um, often pregnancy is a good time when women are more aware of their own health and the importance of being healthy. And uh, it can be a good time to reinforce adherence to medication and things like that. Certainly, um, women should never be taken off medication just because they are pregnant. It's a fascinating area. Um, and I love your topic because it's uh, kind of putting two areas of practice together and showing how they interact, which is always really useful for GPs. We would love to trial this approach. Um, 
in general practice, but we, we just don't have the connections at the moment with, with GP researchers. So <laughs> I'm hopeful that one day in the future we will, yeah, we'll do a trial in, in general practice and, and, and in, or in shared care where a lot of women do receive their care in pregnancy. Now we've got a little break in the show. For our sponsored segment this week, the Medical Republic interviewed Dr. Michael Lowy, a Sydney-based sexual health physician. And this interview is sponsored by Manorini. My name's Michael Lowy, I'm a sexual health physician and I specialise in male sexual dysfunction. What do you think are the major reasons why young men avoid the GP? I think years ago it was a worse situation. Men tended not to go to the doctor much more than these days. These days it's a little easier. There's been a lot more publicity about male health problems, things around testosterone, prostate issues. Men are still reluctant to go to the doctor, but it's getting a little easier in my perception. And are there any numbers for that? Look, it's hard to know the actual numbers um, because there are men who might who might, are young and single, then there are older men who tend to go more often because they and you check their diabetes and, and their blood pressure. So there's distinct ages of men who might be more inclined to go to the doctor, um, perhaps the older man, where the younger man may be a little tougher and, and put up with problems. And are there any other conditions that young men are often experiencing? Yeah. Young men tend to be healthy and they sort of exercise a lot and they may present to me more for things around sexual dysfunction, particularly issues around premature ejaculation, uh, libido issues, and sometimes relationship problems, where the, the older men certainly have sexual problems as they age, but there's more medical problems that they need to sort out around conditions that cause sexual dysfunction like you know, diabetes and, and um, that can also cause low testosterone and that sort of stuff. And how and when do these young men engage with healthcare? Young men tend to engage with healthcare more through online stuff these days. Um, they tend to find me online rather than ask their GP. Though they may ask their GP or they may go onto the various media that they all choose. But um, I, I just have a presence on a website and that is often the way that men find me. And that's a very common pathway to uh, to getting medical help. And do you find they're avoiding primary care and they're going straight to tertiary when it becomes unmanageable? Yeah. If the young man has a good relationship with his GP, he will go to the GP. Mm-hmm. But they, they do see some GPs as not being either interested in those particular young men's problems or they're embarrassed because the GP may not understand them. Um, I think GPs are much better at these sort of things these days, and I'm surprised about that. But I understand that that's, that's what men fear, and I, I hopefully that can be tackled. So that's why they look for me. They come without a referral, without any background, because they, they want the anonymity about you know, being, being private. So are there any ways going forward that you can see that can help um, encourage people to see their GP? Yeah. Well, I th- look, I think it's always important that, that uh, general practices um, are, are comfortable and are not just stereotyped for you know women and children. They have lots of things that also make men feel comfortable. Uh, and it, you know, each practice can market themselves in the way that they f- feel appropriate. Like there are practices that just basically specialise in, in women and children, and you you know you wouldn't expect them to have a whole men's market. But there are practices you know where there's a lot of male presence, particularly particularly in the in the city and central business district where they could you know, market themselves to make men feel more comfortable. 
Um, just, I, I think, you know, the way that whenever there's an article in the newspapers about men, this is the way you tackle through the media, through, through positive promotion, also not just negative stuff about terrible things that can happen to men, you know, if they smoke or they don't do this or that, but or if they take drugs. But there should be positive uh, media releases about men's health in general. And I think that's what Andrology Australia does very well. Do men come to you with an idea of what drug they might want? Do they sort of self-diagnose? Some men he- may hear about medications and come asking for that medication, and some men may come completely oblivious to what's available and um, ask me, what, what can I do for them? And, and I think premature ejaculation would be a good, good example where they might have heard of a drug or they may not have, but they, they certainly seek treatment. Mm-hmm. So it can come either way. My concern is when men buy medications illegally online, you know, the counterfeit drugs, I'd much rather they come to see me for proper advice that comes with you know, proper approved medication. Do you see couples as well or is it mostly men? Yeah. Um, look, I see men and I see them with their partners. If the partners agree to come, men often come to me and they don't tell their partners they're here. I ask them, does your partner know you're here? And they, you know, they say sort of, maybe not, you know, and I think it's always a good idea to bring the partner. Uh, and when a partner comes, it makes a much more dynamic consultation and it's much more fruitful in the outcome to get more information. The treatment can involve both members of the party. So it's a, I, I always prefer partners to be present, if possible. So welcome back. And next up, there could be a new finding which reveals why men may be having fertility problems. And this is a weird one uh, because it's from koala researchers. And they found chlamydia in the testes of infertile men. Felicity, how did they do this and why is it an important finding? So Ken Beagley, a professor of immunology at Queensland University of Technology, was in the headlines a few years ago uh, because he came up with this vaccine for chlamydia in koalas. But he's back in the news this week with another major finding, this time in humans. So what they did is they looked at preserved and fresh tissue from the testicles of infertile men and found that a lot of them had chlamydia in them, which seemed to be replicating, so it was obviously a live virus. Uh, So about half of the preserved samples and 17% of the fresh samples had chlamydia in them. So the reason this is really interesting is because no one has ever looked at this before, and so no one knew that men who were infertile sometimes had chlamydia in their testes. So we know from previous research in koalas and mice that chlamydia in the testes causes infertility. Mice and koalas both have different strains of chlamydia, um, but the researchers think that it could be working in a similar way in humans. But some of these men actually tested negative to chlamydia in the urine test, isn't that correct? Yeah, so that's kind of weird. You'd think that if they had chlamydia infections in their testes that they'd p- test positive. But a few of the men who that did an STI screen um, actually tested negative. So I spoke to the researcher about this and they think maybe that what's happening is that men get a chlamydia infection when, you know, this become sexually active. And then the infection goes to the testes and it's sort of a hangover infection that just can't be detected with normal STI screening. But keep in mind that there's no control group in this study, so we don't know whether fertile men also have chlamydia infections that haven't been detected in their testes. And if it turns out that fertile men and infertile men both have chlamydia, it's unlikely that chlamydia is related to infertility. This is very interesting, Felicity, because a lot of men who are infertile, they don't know why. Um, And, you know, they might think that it's for a range of factors and it's often been thought that infections could have been behind it. 
Indeed. And it could be that a course of antibiotics targeting chlamydia might actually be able to clear up the infection and have a positive impact on fertility, but it's very early days. Um, We would have to go and do a whole lot of clinical trials to figure that one out. And more broadly, looking at where we are now with research, where are we at with knowing why chlamydia causes infertility? So let's have the expert explain this because they'll do it a lot better than I can. Um, This is Professor Beagley explaining the mechanism. Uh, Well, there are a number of key support cells in the testis, mainly cells called Sertoli cells and Leydig cells, and they're essential for providing protection for the developing sperm and also key nutrients. And we know from the mouse studies and the uh, studies in koalas that those cells are easily infected by chlamydia and they're damaged by the infection. So we think it's damaged to these key support cells and we've been able to get those cells out of mice and show that we can infect them very easily with chlamydia and it damages their ability to produce nutrients and to support development of sperm. And what are other researchers saying about this study? Well, it's quite big news. I spoke to Professor Basil Donovan. He's the head of the sexual health program at the Kirby Institute and here's what he had to say about it. I think it's of huge interest, yeah. They fairly convincingly demonstrated that chlamydia was up in the testes and that there was a and it was associated with a protein called uh, TC0500, which is a replication marker. That is, that it wasn't dead chlamydia. It was a chlamydia that was still alive and replicating, at least when they uh, took the biopsy or preserved it in paraffin. Now, that's, that's actually a world first. No one's, no one's shown that before. So it's going to be really interesting to see where this research goes. Yeah, and it's very interesting because we often concentrate so much attention on the infertility chlamydia can cause in females, and so it's interesting to see how it's affecting males as well. Yeah, and it's funny, men out there who have infertility might be wondering, oh, is it chlamydia behind it? Um, But obviously they can't just go get an STI screen, and it's a very painful procedure to get this biopsy done, so it'll be interesting to see if more men go and try and get this biopsy Yeah, and on that note, that brings us to the end of this episode. But if you can't get enough, make sure that you subscribe or follow the podcast and you can even find it on all your favourite audio streaming and podcast apps and, of course, the Medical Republic website. And also make sure you join us next time because it's an exclusive where we're going to look at the changes happening at the RACGP. Yes, the annual report came out recently and our publisher, Jeremy Nibbs, has been going through it with a fine-tooth comb. And there's a lot more that the data can tell us about the college than just where your money is being spent. Catch you next time.